Welcome to the Women's Leadership Network podcast series. This series was created as a means to encourage, inspire, and empower women who want to make their lives better. Life has been this very unpredictable journey, so much so because of the people that I've met along the way who've changed me and changed my life. And that's been really amazing. We look for current issues and challenges facing women in the legal world and offer ways of tackling these issues as well as provide a community of support and engagement. I'm Jeannie Forrest for the Women's Leadership Network. Our guest today is Vijaya Gatti, class of 2000, general counsel of Twitter. I'm happy to welcome Vijaya to the podcast today. Thank you so much, Jeannie. I'm really thrilled to be here. Because this conversation is oriented around women, I always start with this question. What was your experience in law school, particularly as a woman law student? I had a a really fantastic experience at NYU. I would say that um, at the time that I was there, it felt like, and I don't have the numbers, but it felt like our class was pretty evenly balanced between men and women. And I was lucky enough my first year to also have quite a few outstanding female professors, including Professor Bean and Professor Dreyfus. So it was not something that really colored my experience at law school, I would say. And I don't think there was that strong awareness of the types of issues that we're talking about in society today back then. You mean you didn't think about being a woman particularly? I didn't think about being a woman particularly, nor did I have an awareness of Um, notions of unconscious bias or other things that might affect how a woman might perform in different types of environments versus a man. And I think that those are the types of discussions we're having more and more in the workplace now. And, you know, looking back on it, like one example I can think of is, you know, a lot of women may not be super comfortable in a Socratic method teaching style because a lot of studies have shown that women like to think more about their answers. They don't necessarily like being put on the spot. Not everyone, but some of them. But none of that really occurred to me back then because there wasn't even this awareness of those types of issues, at least from my perspective. And you walk into law school and everyone tells you this is how you have to learn. This is how you're going to be taught. You have to be prepared for it. And there's no real way around that. So we all just kind of accepted that and did that, um, at least first year. Afterwards, you know, you have different types of classes, seminars, more writing focused, et cetera, where you could um, take different approaches. But your first year, you're thrown into this method of teaching, and it's unclear to me whether everyone would be successful in that type of an environment. But you thrived. Um, I did okay in law school. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) How did it show up later? Um, Which piece in particular? (laughs) I thought you were going to say which piece in ridiculousness. Um, This business about being a woman I would say for me, it showed up when I got to uh, Silicon Valley and when I got to the law firm that I was working at. Again, I had a I had an overall strong experience, but the field that I chose, which was corporate governance M and A, was uh, largely dominated by men, and um, especially in the partnership and the more senior ranks. And so that was kind of when I became aware of the disparity and really was looking for opportunities to work with more women because there weren't many role models who were women in my field. Mm-hmm. I always say that there's this confluence, this beautiful confluence, really. Sometimes I joke with the students that um, we used to say it's a, we're each a unique snowflake. 
um, I forget the I, snowflake is so political these days that I say, forget that. We're each a unique Dorito. Uh, you know, there's no Dorito that's the same. This beautiful confluence that's a combination of our gender and our race and our background and our emotional intelligence and everything that makes us who we are. You had some pretty unique experiences growing up. You've talked about before your time growing up in a small town in Texas as an immigrant, how your father had to get permission from a local KKK group to sell insurance door to door, how that influenced you and your decision to become a lawyer. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my dad, um, my, my parents immigrated here. My dad got a master's degree, actually two degrees, at Kansas University, um, chemical engineering and an MBA. And we moved to the Gulf Coast of Texas to a small town because uh, he worked in an oil refinery as a chemical engineer. And, um, you know, that market was going through a lot of transition and he was laid off a few times. And, you know, during those interim periods, he had to work and have, find a job and pay the rent and pay for food and all of that stuff. And we lived in this small town. And he got a job at an insurance company. In those days, you would literally go door to door. You would collect the premiums monthly. So you would be knocking on people's door, collecting the premiums, selling them new policies, et cetera. And his boss was... How did he end up in in Texas? um, Well, chemical engineering, oil refinery. Like, it kind of made sense. Right. And that's where a lot of uh, the oil companies were based from the drilling in the Gulf. So his boss was really worried. He was like, well, you know, I... That people aren't used to, you know, people that look like you in this town. I don't want you, I want you to be safe. You need to go have this meeting. And it turns out it was a local leader of the KKK. And um, he had to go to his house and basically say, you know, is, is it okay? Will I be safe? And it was like this surreal conversation that he reflects upon now where he was basically asking permission to walk around his own neighborhood. You know, I kind of have goosebumps right now. And what did the guy say? Well, he he was not very politically correct, as you can imagine. So I'll I'll recall the conversation as my dad told it to me, which was, there are a lot of, a lot of other people we hate a lot more than you. So we're focused on them right now. We're not going to worry about Indians. He prioritized things. Yes. Wow. That's a pretty harsh thing for someone to move their entire life and their entire family around the world to start a new life, thinking that you're coming to America for a better life for your children and to be having like that type of a conversation. And that was an initial spark for you. Well, you know, it's funny. My dad didn't tell me that story until much later, as you can imagine. He didn't want me to know that that was going on. But my experience growing up in that town was that um, there weren't, at the time, many minorities the minorities that were there were either African-American or of Hispanic heritage. And those communities basically stuck to themselves. So for me, as an Indian immigrant, it was a very isolating experience because I didn't really have a community growing up there. I know that the notion of diversity and inclusion and the notion of belonging is actually really important to you at this point, um, in part because of that sense of isolation that you grew up with. Yes, and it was only when I went to college and I found a really strong Indian community in this country that I really understood what that meant to have that sense of belonging. And in many ways, um, it changed me. And, you know, it, it makes me sad to think there are people who grow up not feeling that. And I don't think it has to be, your communities can be welcoming and embracing, even if they don't look like you. It just wasn't necessarily the same experience that I had. How does it change you as a lawyer 
when you think of this? I think that it really does color um, my instinctive nature to protect the underdogs. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a lot of why I have the political views that I have and why I'm always trying to help people because I do think that um, as much as I believe in the American ideals and values and the system that we've set up, we've also left a lot of our society behind and those experiences and and it's not an equal playing field and it's not that just that you can work hard and get ahead you actually do need more than that there is a big component in, of luck in success and yes hard work is important too but um not everyone can achieve what everyone else has and i i really believe in helping make sure that the less fortunate members of our society get the help that they need it's impressive given this story, that you also went toward tech, which seems like such a highly specified niche of the law. Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny. You know, I chose tech for a couple reasons. One, I was just really fascinated by the intersection of technology and the law. It was very unknown, and it felt like there was a lot of um, exploring to do where there was no expert. Nobody knew what was going on, and it felt like a great opportunity as a young lawyer to like figure it out with everyone else how these companies were going to operate in a world where the laws just hadn't caught up to the technology they were building. And the second reason I was really drawn to tech was because um, everyone in these companies when I moved to Silicon Valley was young. Um, there were lots of immigrants, lots of young people, these founders. Some of them hadn't even gone to college. And it was just this really inspiring world where I wasn't going to be in a boardroom in New York or in London, the other places I had interned, surrounded by 65-year-old white men wondering what this Indian girl was doing in the room. Mm -hmm. I was going to be in a boardroom that had a bunch of young people who were trying to change the world. And that just felt inspiring. And it felt like I would have the opportunity to have a lot more credibility and a lot more autonomy and responsibility at a young age. It does feel like a little bit like the last frontier, or at least a new frontier. It certainly felt like that then. Now I feel like technology is so pervasive in everyone's day-to-day life. Even if people feel like they're Luddites, like everyone understands the role that technology is playing in our society or in the world. You know, everyone in the world has a Facebook account. It feels like uh, people know what Twitter is in the world because they read about it on the news all the time. So technology has this very commonplace it is very commonplace now. Um, and so in some ways, it's it's probably the next evolution of technology, which you and I can't even necessarily, or I can't necessarily imagine what's coming next. But whether it's VR or artificial intelligence, self-driving cars, like there's all this stuff coming that feels like the next frontier. And, and that's one of the great things about working in a place like Silicon Valley is that you're constantly being asked to think about what what's next, what's coming next, and how how, as a lawyer, you can help make that real. Come on, that's my next question is, what's next? I want you, I want you to figure that out. <laughs> you are one of two women on Twitter's executive team. I just think this is, first of all, dazzling. How do you think having women's voices present in the company's leadership contributes to the decision-making? I'm very grateful for that, by the way, to know that there are women in this conversation, given, you know... Forgive me, but I, I've seen the pictures of what's going on in our, our current leadership, and I'm just really grateful that there are some women in, in leadership right now somewhere. I, I hear you. 
Look, I, I think there have been a ton, tons of studies that show that corporations that have more diversity in their boardrooms and their leadership tend to perform better. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand with that one as my number one point. And my speculation on why that is is because I think diversity of viewpoints, diversity of background, whether it's gender or race or religion, that diversity helps you make better decisions because the problems that we're tackling um, as executive teams are not easy. If they were, everyone would be able to do it. Uh, there are challenges of growing a high-technology company in a world. There are really complicated issues that we're facing day-to-day. And we also, at Twitter specifically, we have a platform that's half women. We have a platform used by 80% of our users are outside of the United States. The African-American community has a very strong voice on Twitter. And if you don't have those viewpoints represented in the company at the highest levels of the company, you're not going to make good choices for your customers, period. And so that is why I think like having that diversity at the top is very, very important. I can't say any more. This is like a mic drop moment. <laughs> this is, that's exactly right. There's, there is no more to say. What advice would you give to young lawyers? Women tend not to stand up for themselves. When they look at the landscape out there, they see still a lot of men. And they think, oh. And unfortunately, there are a fearsome, it still feels like a fearsome road to climb. What do you tell them? Well, a couple of things. And I think, Jeannie, you and I have talked about this before. The people who have given me the most opportunities and taken a chance on me in my career are men. And let's not forget our allies on the other side because they are really, really important to this cause. I had really phenomenal, I worked for three really phenomenal men at Twitter who really helped me develop as an attorney. My first boss, Alex. My second boss, Dick Costello, CEO of Twitter, gave me the opportunity to become general counsel and really encouraged me because I had a lot of anxiety and doubt about whether I was ready. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't hear it from me. Like He was like, I see it in you. That should be enough. You should do this. We're going to do this together. I'm going to help you. And he helped me grow into that role in a really phenomenal way and in a way that I couldn't have done without that kind of a support and without that kind of um, confidence from someone that someone in my life. And lastly, my current boss, Jack, is amazing, and he just has so much trust and He's so aware of the issues that women and minorities are facing, and he's so supportive, and he walks the walk. He just doesn't, he doesn't just talk to the talk, and working for someone like that is, is truly inspiring. So the first thing I will say is don't forget about the men. Men will help you. Um, and the second thing I will say is women will help you too. There may not be as many of them, but I've also found this incredibly supportive community of women the minute I became GC, the number of women executives around Silicon Valley reached out to me to congratulate me. Um, turns out that there was this um, female public company general counsel group that had dinner once a quarter. Immediately reached out, and then all of a sudden I had access to 30 amazing GCs who were women, public company GCs, and I had this built-in mentor network, and it was just tremendous. So. It may look intimidating, but if you keep moving forward, there will be people who will come out and help you along the way. So take a look with a keen eye for the people who will help you and pay attention to those people. 
we have talked about that. I look around at the landscape of my life. Um, I look back and around and I say, wow, there have been some guys in my life who have been amazing. They have been both supportive and who have set the bar really high for me. And that there is something incredible about the demanding men in my life who've said, yeah, you can do this. And, and that doesn't even count the ones in my personal life, um, from my grandfather to my father to my husband, mm-hmm. who have in some ways been the biggest support network that I've had. Um, not to say that my mom and my grandmother weren't, but like mm-hmm. they were also like hugely important and influential in my life. And you know, I come from a culture where women weren't always encouraged to work outside of the home. I think that's an understatement, probably. But, um, you know, the generation of my grandparents, um, most women didn't work outside of the home. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather was the one that really encouraged my parents to come to America. He thought the opportunities for for us would be much bigger. And he was also the one that always encouraged me to pursue my dreams. He never saw any sort of barriers because I was a woman, even though he grew up in this generation where it was very uncommon for women to have careers. And having that kind of an influence in your life from a very young age, is very powerful. It really is. I had a guy tell me one time, don't drink the Kool-Aid when somebody tells you, oh, that's amazing. How can you do it all? He said, just don't drink that Kool-Aid. You can actually do a lot. Just keep doing it. Don't get so impressed with that idea that you should be tired or you you really just can't do it all. He said, you can actually do quite a bit and keep doing it. Yes, you can. I think you need a lot of support from a lot of people to get there. Um, And and I, I always tell people, like, don't worry. Like, everyone's notion of do it all is different. And you have to define that for yourself. Well, that sort of calls into question that ridiculous, trite expression about work-life balance. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what your workday is like. I cannot not even imagine what your not-so-typical day at Twitter looks like. Every day must be different. Yeah, every day is different. And so that, that makes it somewhat challenging, but it's also what makes it exciting. Now, that's not for everyone. That would be more difficult, I imagine. I don't have children, but for someone who had children, that having that uncertainty all the time might be difficult. So I think um, it's really it's really about making sure that I try to take a step back and make sure that the time I'm spending over a long period of time, not like day to day or week to week, is really consistent towards my goals. And what I mean by that is I had this, um, a CEO at Juniper Networks who taught me this. He's like, you know, before the year starts, I work with my, my team and I say, I want to spend X percentage of my year with customers. I want to spend, you know, Y percent with my team. And he would make sure that, like, he was evaluating that every, every month, every week, every quarter to make sure he was actually meeting those goals. Because if you're not aware of how you're spending your time, you're going to always be in this very reactive mode. So I do that with my assistant. We sit down and I say, look, on a week-to-week basis, I understand things are going to come up and there are going to be emergencies, which we have all the time. But taking a step back, I want to make sure I'm allocating my time in a way that long-term is really important to make sure I'm spending time on different things. And then I have at least an hour or two a day where I'm not scheduled, not just to deal with emergencies, but just to think to be strategic, to be able to like take a breath and like make sure I'm not forgetting to focus on something that might be really important. That might in fact be your superpower. Um, but I also think of you as like a really good negotiator. I think of you as being somebody who comes to the table 
armed with some serious negotiating skills. Do you want to talk a little bit about your negotiating skills? Um, you know, that's really, that's funny that you think that I, I've never necessarily thought of that as my superpower. <laughs> and it's funny because in my personal life, I hate negotiating, like, because I do it for work. You're like, I, you know, it's like the lawyer, like heal thyself kind of thing, because I won't read a contract in my personal life. I'll be like someone else to deal with this because I do this at work every day. Um, you know, what I say about negotiating, there's different types, right? Like if you're trying to get something out of someone, there's tons of studies about the best way to do that. I, d I do think that people need to find their own style when negotiating. Adopting someone else's style, it may not work for your personality. It may not make you feel comfortable. And I think uh, for me, what's always worked is I always, I hate wasting time. I am a very efficient person. A waste of time is like the worst thing in the world. People being late drives me crazy. Like, so um, in negotiating, I try to get to the point. I'm like, I don't need to go back and forth and like give and take a million times to feel like I did a good job. Like I want to get to the point where I know that we're going to get to as quickly as possible. So I don't take extreme positions in negotiations. I think they alienate people. I think it just creates a lot of back and forth. I try to go to a reasonable point. I try to have a discussion about why I think it's reasonable, why I think it's important. And admit, hey, if we agree to this, we can all just go home, right? It's great. So that's, that is my approach is to really find that middle ground and to, to work there because I think it just builds a lot of credibility and um, it makes it easier for everyone involved. And if you have that reputation for having that, that stance, I have that reputation for, you know, save time, tell the truth. It's quicker. Um, it's actually a much more efficient process. Then people come to expect that of you. Then it does make you, that is in fact a negotiation tactic. People come to expect that you're going to come to the table with a grandiose statement. You're going to come out of the table and they think, okay, there's a little bit of an eye roll. Um, and then we're, we're going to go back and forth and we're going to dicker a little bit. Then that's the game. But if they come to expect, well, Vigie is going to come to the table with a moderate thing, and you're not going to you're not going to spend a lot of time. This is what she wants, and that's a, that is in itself a very efficient approach. I think so. It's funny when I was at a, at a law firm, <clears throat> I um, I use this all the time. Like I would just call my counterpart and be like, "We shouldn't argue about this. We all know this is a market provision. Let's just both agree, rather than like trading five red lines back and forth. Let's agree to this." And so my billable hours were never that high as a law firm because I took this very efficient approach, which didn't really fit the business model of the law firm. And so I, it was funny because I always got my work done. I always did the same number of deals, but I always felt a little bit like I wasn't being rewarded the same way because my style was very different than other people's. And I was like, look, at the end of the day, I'm really proud of this because I think it's good for my clients. I Absolutely. got them the best result and I got it at a cheaper price. But obviously back then where billable hours were so important, it wasn't, um, it wasn't as appreciated as I would have liked it to be. I love it when there's a, a great reward for excellence. <laughs> um, what's the soundest piece? I, I hate this as like life hack kind of question, but what's the soundest piece of advice you've ever learned from someone who came before you? A parent, a mentor, the piece of advice that you'd want to pass on to the next generation. I ask this question because I like to, I like to think of you. Um, you're, you're not old enough to this, but I like to, I like to think of you as looking back on uh, your younger self and saying, okay, what would you what would you tell your younger self? So I only got this advice a couple of years ago. I got it from one of our really fantastic board members, Marjorie Scardino. 
and she, she probably said it differently and I probably heard it slightly off, but it's, it's how I, I wish I had, I had done this more. And it was something of like, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt and always be kind, like generous to them. You will never regret that. You'll never regret being kind to someone. And, um, I think that's right. And I'm not sure that when I was younger, I was always very quick to do that. <laughs> but I think as I've gotten older and I realize like everyone carries so much with them day to day, like everyone's got struggles and like, you know, even if someone approaches you with a bad attitude, like you don't know what's going on in their life. You have no idea. Like give them the benefit of the doubt, assume that it's not intentional and it's not directed at you and just be kind and, um, you know, see what happens from there. And I think that's just a great piece of advice. And I think that that, that good goodness will follow you around, hopefully. I love that. Carol Gilligan gave me some version of that one time. She said, whenever you find yourself, even toward yourself, falling into judgment, try curiosity instead. And so maybe curiosity and kindness are, are you know, kissing cousins. Yes, I think we could all use a little bit of that, particularly these days. <laughs> a related question then maybe is, what do you think your younger self would think of you now? Oh, wow. I have no idea. <laughs> Probably not recognize it, you know, especially if I think of myself as a, a young child in Texas. Like, I don't think I could have ever imagined having the life that I have today. And I think that's that's part of what's made it so fun is because it's, life has been this very unpredictable journey. And um, so it's so much so because of the people that I've met along the way who've changed me and changed my life. Um, and that's been really amazing. We're sitting here in the Twitter offices in New York City, and I cannot imagine that that little child in this coastal Texas town would ever have imagined that this would be the case. I'm impressed. <laughs> Thank you. I can imagine that she would have just been dazzled. I think she would just be surprised. I think when you're a child, at least when I was a child, um, a couple of things that I had these very strong, strong views that when I grow up, I'm going to be able to do whatever I want, which I quickly realized was not the case, and that I would have more control over what happened to me and that I could predict my path. And what I have found is that that is just not the case. And um, opportunities come or don't come at different times in your life. People enter and leave your life at different times. And you can't predict what you're going to feel and how you're going to react in those moments. And I think one of the things that's been really um, helpful to me is just taking this attitude of learning from every experience that I've had and trying to be better and trying to um, just take what I can from, from that and for the next time, to the extent the next time happens. And that's been something that's, I think, it's been a great comfort to me that even in really bad times, I, I try to look for that. And um, I actually think there's a, there's a really fantastic book by Carol Dweck called Mindset. And I don't generally like business or social science books, but this one really, I think, is excellent. And it's it's great not just in a professional context, but also in a personal context, because having the uh, the right mindset, which she talks about as this growth mindset, you know, believing that you can always get better through hard work and um, versus that you have innate abilities, which is a fixed mindset. I just think that growth mindset can really change your life. Approaching life with that attitude can really make it more fun. 
actually. We'll put her book on our reading list. Great. For the Women's Leadership Network. Yes, it's fantastic. And you now have, keep in mind that that little girl in this Texas town, no wonder you'd be surprised. Twitter was a word that, you know, meant birds singing in trees. (laughs) <laughs> when we were growing up. I could not imagine the pace of technology. I mean, I went, even when I went to law school, like I didn't have a cell phone, right? So um, the things that have changed so dramatically, even in the last 15 years, much less from when I was a child. So it has been extraordinary. And I, I look forward to whatever, whatever the next chapter of uh, Silicon Valley and tech companies are. I'm sure it will be fascinating. It was really fun to talk to you. So thank you. Thank you, Jeannie, so much. <laughs> For more information about the Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law, and to access more episodes in this series, please visit us online at law.nyu.edu slash womensleadership. leadership.